You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined by Sean and not Rick uh, again today. I think Rick is on China time. In Rick's place, we actually have Chad Krishan. He is the advertising manager at BoardGameGeek. And he has a uh, he's a self-publisher of really awesome 3D wooden puzzles that are incredible. He runs a company called Puzzle Bomb. And we've we've helped him run a couple of Kickstarters. And and Chad, welcome to the show. Yeah, so glad to be with you. Yeah, so on this episode, I really wanted to dive into Board Game Geek as an advertising medium, display ads, which uh, you have a lot of hands on, you know, we could talk about email marketing from independent uh, uh, you know, companies like BoardGameGeek and taking advantage of other people's lists and, and just your experience as the advertising manager at BGG. I'm really excited to just kind of dive in, but maybe the first uh, where we can start is share a little bit about yourself for our listeners and where, you know, your background and, and everything. Yeah, maybe it's kind of a funny story how I got started at BoardGameGeek. I've been working for BoardGameGeek about 16 years now. Wow. Um, and at the time, I actually went to college for landscape architecture. I was an urban planner at an architecture firm. And I had gone to the first BoardGameGeekCon, which was like 300 people at the first BoardGameGeekCon. And yeah. you knew everybody's avatar and username. It's not like today where there's so many people on the website. Mm-hmm. And I met Aldi there, who's the owner of Board Game Geek, became friends with him. I was already an admin on the site because I was submitting so much content to the site. They said, why don't you just be an admin and you can approve your own stuff? So I was kind of, <laughs> I was kind of involved a little bit with Board Game Geek at that time. And I think it was a couple years later, Aldi quit his job at 3D Realms to work full-time on board game geek and the industry in the u.s was still pretty small at that time but it was getting big enough where he could do board game geek full-time and i was on my lunch break at my architecture firm chatting with him i said how are you doing all this stuff yourself like you're the programmer you're all the emails coming in all this stuff i wasn't asking for a job but he said how about when you get home tonight i I don't have time to answer these advertising emails that come in. When you get home, give me a call. Um, If you want to do this on commission, I'll set you up with the email address with our invoicing system and you can go to town on this. And I I had no marketing experience, no nothing. I was just really passionate about board games, which was the important part of the equation. Yeah. Um, And I think it was only two months later I was like, I can't do this and my architecture job. It's too much. So I quit (laughs) (laughs) job to to work for Board Game Geek. And I'm so glad that I was in my early 20s when that happened. I was going to say, like, how many children did you have? I had zero children. So so the risk aversion wasn't really there in my early 20s. Uh, My whole family told me how dumb I was for making this move. We went to college for four years. And now you're just going to do this. But man, best decision I've ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Or one of the best decisions I've ever made. (laughs) And then how did you get into board games itself? Was it something you've played 
all your life or is it something you came into later in life? How did that sort of transition? Yeah. In, in high school, I was a geek slash nerd band guy and my friends and I, we'd hang out and play Risk and Axis and Allies. We really had no idea that other games existed other than that. Uh, but I think it was after winter break, my freshman year of college, one of those friends came home with a copy of Munchkin, which I'm not a huge fan of that game, but it it opened my eyes to the fact that there's some other games out there probably. And I was going to University of Wisconsin and there's a game club there that I hooked up with. And that's that would have been 2002-ish, 2001, 2002. Yeah. And then it just snowballed from there. That's pretty good. That's before Catan really became a thing. I want to say that wasn't until 2004, 2005, right? In the US. Yeah. No, I, I remember with Madison Board Gamers, all of our games pretty much, we would, there was a board game retailer in Germany called Adam Spielt at the time. And this was before the Euro. So it was all in Deutschmarks. And it was like every dollar was two Deutschmarks. So it felt like you were getting these games for super cheap, but they arrived completely in German and you personally had to do the translations of the rules a lot of the times if you wanted to play them. So very, very, very different environment wow. than we have now. That's, That's wild. And so this transition to Board Game Geek from being a landscape architect, that happened around, from what the timeline sounds like, around 2007. Is that right? Yes, the, exactly. Yep. So math. <laughs> yeah. When you took over those advertising, the advertising responsibilities for BGG, what existed at that time? Was it the kind of the a version of the display ads system that you have today? What did you like? What were your offerings to publishers, and how has that kind of evolved over the years? Goodness, that was so long ago. I'm trying to think back on what we had <laughs> at that time. I, If I'm remembering right, so we, we use Google Ad Manager as our ad display system these days for the, for the display ads. I'm pretty certain it was a completely different system back then, if I remember right. And the only thing we had was display banner advertising at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very, very simple, straightforward. And fortunately for me at the time, right, and it's still kind of that way. For, for tabletop games, Board Game Geek is really still one of the go-to places. Mm-hmm. Most publishers say it's a no-brainer to advertise on Board Game Geek. Okay. So despite my lack of advertising knowledge, and I'm still like this today, I don't like being a salesperson. I'm not, I'm not big on trying to sell people on something. I have a servant's heart to just serve people to help them in what they're doing. And it turned out that's what, that's what was valuable. People already knew they wanted to advertise on board game geek. They just needed a trustworthy person to give them honest, straightforward advice without trying to sell them on packages they don't really need. Um, so that was really, really wonderful for me or else I probably would have hated the job if it would have been about sales. Yeah. Um, and it was a very simple product at the time with not a lot of options, not many bells and whistles. So yeah, over the years, obviously email marketing has become a thing that it wasn't in 2007. Um, 
for especially since we're talking about crowdfunding, we have a weekly email that goes out called Crowdfunding Weekly. Anybody that's advertising with us gets a text link in that weekly email. Board game fans that are into crowdfunding really love that email because generally that email separates the wheat from the chaff a little bit, so to speak. Like if they're a reputable company with the marketing budget, um, which I don't think you should go into a Kickstarter campaign without a marketing budget, that's mm-hmm. kind of one sign that you weren't really prepared to launch a Kickstarter project. I'll preach it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, that so that email kind of takes usually the more successful campaigns or the ones that are prepared to be successful at least and consolidates them into an email. Um, so that email marketing has become pretty prominent. Uh, we weren't we weren't running contests back then, from what I can remember. Uh, contests are a really great option on BoardGameGeek as well, because most of it isn't really so much the contest itself. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the fact that you get this flood of people going to the BoardGameGeek listing, which affects our hotness charts. Mm-hmm. I can't get into the secret sauce on how our hotness works, or everyone's going to try to game it. But let's just say page views is, is an important part of it. So mm-hmm. a lot of publishers like doing that because uh, it gets them up onto that hotness list, which then gets them a lot more organic traffic mm-hmm. uh, than they would have gotten otherwise. Yeah. You know, let's take a pit stop there because uh, you've gone over a number of different things. So we talked about a little bit of the evolution and, and, and then how you kind of expanded services over time. We talked about email marketing. We talked about display ads. You mentioned contests. Mm-hmm. And I want to take a pit stop at contests because yeah. I had a really interesting experience. You know, I've advertised myself on BoardGameGeek, you, you know, through with Deliverance. And I've, I've recommended others um, to do the same. And one thing that I find was well worth the, the money was the contest. And... I want to say, what are they like $1,600 or something like that? $2,000. Yeah. $2,000. And I remember thinking about like, do I want to run a contest? And, you know, really it came down for me uh, to something like, I would always see that there were like three or to 4,000 entries in, in a contest. And I thought that means that there have to be three to 4,000 people that would, uh, look at my page and, you know, for deliverance and, um, what happened when we when we launched our Kickstarter, we went live with a contest, I want to say a week later or something like that. And we reached like the top, I, I think we peaked at like number four on the hotness list during the, um, the contest. And that by itself, I would say is probably the most valuable thing that we achieved through BoardGameGeek because all of mm-hmm. a sudden media started talking about us. There were a bunch of like intangibles that happened. Uh, media started talking about us. People noticed us. Um, of course, our fans were really excited. Oh, we're reaching, you know, the top of the hotness and that kind of thing. We ended up um, earning like 400 subscribers on BGG uh, total, uh, you know, and and it was it was something that I feel like was very well worthwhile. Now, your email marketing, you have your crowdfunding weekly. You've got something called Gone Cardboard. Isn't there a third list as well? Yeah, there's also one called Geek Weekly. Yeah, Crowdfunding Weekly. When people sign up for emails on BoardGameGeek, we have them tell us what they're actually interested in. Mm-hmm. So Crowdfunding Weekly is specifically going to people that said, I like seeing crowdfunding campaigns. I want an email about that. 
Gone Cardboard is only re the retail releases for the week. So I can go to a retailer, get this in my hands right here, right now. And we only sell advertising in that mailer are games that you can actually buy right here, right now. We want to make sure it fits the interests of that list. And then Geek Weekly is kind of a weekly roundup of the top mm -hmm. content on Board Game Geek. Board Game yeah. Geek's a big site. You can miss lots of stuff that happens on the site. So that's that's an email for people that just want to see what what's gotten a lot of thumbs this week, what stuff's mm -hmm. gotten a lot of traction this week, and then we sell some promoted slots in that yeah. email as well. Yeah. So um, then I I guess before I move on into you know I just I wanted to take a little pit stop at contests, but yeah. uh, so we went through email marketing display ads contests, and then you have like add-ons of various kinds. And and these are, of course, the email marketing, we, those three emails, you can add those on. But what other add-ons does BGG have? Like, I, I know there's like a homepage takeover, yeah. like a thing like that. Uh, but yeah. can you tell, can you explain what those things are? Sure. Yeah, the one you just referenced, we call it the homepage hero. When you first get to BoardGameGeek on the homepage, there's a large banner ad right at the top of the page. Um, that's how you can get into that slot is by buying that homepage hero. For crowdfunding, really great getting that at the beginning of the campaign when you launch, let people know you're live. And then also at the end of the campaign, you can get people off the fence um, mm -hmm. with those high visibility spots like that. Then the main one, um, other one that's gonna be pertinent for a crowdfunding audience, is we have a module on the homepage called Crowdfunding Countdown. That module is unpaid, so and a lot of publishers don't yet know this. People are learning this system, but when you launch a Kickstarter campaign, make sure to go into your version information on your Board Game Geek listing and input your crowdfunding information into that version module. Um, it'll ask you for your start date, end date, and the URL of your Kickstarter campaign. Um, that's going to automatically populate your project into the crowdfunding countdown module on the homepage, um, which is just free exposure for mm -hmm. anybody that has a live campaign. And we do set a minimum of 50 backers. If you have less mm -hmm. than 50 backers, you're not going to show up in that module. Um, but again, we want to we want to focus on campaigns that have a reasonable chance mm -hmm. of succeeding. So we put some thresholds in place there. Um, but the crowdfunding cool. countdown advertising option gets you first place on that list for a week. Oh, wow. that's a that's a pretty popular destination on the homepage. People want to see what's live on on Kickstarter right now, mm -hmm. or GameFound, or BackerKit, or any of those crowdfunding platforms. That's pretty cool, and that's something that is new since I've last used you guys. We mm -hmm. we ran our Kickstarter campaign just over two years ago, and. That that wasn't a thing at the time, and I actually, you know, have seen many of our clients when it's time for the, you know, the hotness list and everything like that. I'm always checking up on our clients, and the crowdfunding countdown is something that I just started to see one day, and all of a sudden it's like this, it's it's right below the hotness list, and it's just a, ben a straight up benefit to all of the crowdfunding campaigns out there. And so I would imagine that you might, as things get busier. You might start to up the number of minimum backers to show game, you know, or funding if it's funded or not. Or yeah, with any with any tool, you kind of have to play it by ear. What's working? What's not working? Mm -hmm. The the main thing for us is that's that's like useful content for 
anybody interested in crowdfunding, but you want to keep the content useful. You don't want you don't want every campaign with five backers or something showing because then then the tool becomes less useful. Yeah, we obviously specialize in Facebook ads, and people often have budgets that they want to you know exceed outside of Facebook. And we always recommend two things. YouTube influencers and board game geek ads. Those are sort of the next steps outside of Facebook ads. Mm-hmm. And since you've run, you know, you've been running display ads for 16 years now. Is there any common any commonalities between all these display ads that you've noticed that perform particularly well on board game geek? Is there any certain language or call to actions, or maybe without call to actions, logos without logos? Maybe can you give people some tips on how to craft some really engaging ads that get a high click-through rate on Bullgame Geek? Ooh, that's a good question. And then and then let me um add let me add a little bit of extra into that, which is the sizes and shapes of ads. I know you can do like up to five of each type of ad and your system will automatically kind of prioritize the highest click through rates. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. So absolutely. okay, cool. Yeah. So yes, please answer Sean's question and Answer it in as much detail as you want, because the more, the better as far yeah, as we're here. Absolutely. I think what you just mentioned is a really important thing, that optimization. Um, you can make up to five creatives or five banner ads of, of each size. And our system's automatically going to start tracking, okay, this banner is performing better than the other banners. So it's going to start prioritizing that and giving it more share of views than all those other ads. And sometimes if it's really poor performing, it's just going to kind of quit on that ad entirely, which makes your ad spend so much more efficient because it's even, even after doing this 16 years, certain banners will surprise me with their performance. Like I, I don't think it's a great banner. And then I look at the data I'm like, why is this happening? So there's, there's some amount of just experimentation to it. in the long run, even once you know what works and what doesn't work. Um, but I think especially in our industry, when when so many companies are, they're one person or two people, it's easy to kind of, I don't want to say get lazy about this part of the process, but you only have so much time to spend <laughs> on each task. Um, make sure to spend your time on making a few alternatives and don't just change one little element of the ad where it's pretty much the same ad, but I changed this one character over here. I always recommend come up with five pretty uniquely different ad designs because a lot of the changes aren't really noticeable. I've seen when people submit several different ad types, they, they technically made five different banners, but visually they're all the same as each other or the messaging is all the same. So yeah, that's the first that's the first big one is just make lots of ads so you can test them out. Um, one thing that's really that I've seen really lift click-through rates, if you're running a crowdfunding campaign, put the Kickstarter logo or the GameFound logo or the backer kit logo on the ad itself. That might be unique to the Board Game Geek crowd, I'm not sure, but Board Game Geek users understand the urgency of mm-hmm. crowdfunding. So it rings very different if you put pre-order now versus Kickstarter or mm-hmm. GameFound. In fact, I've seen the words pre-order now be a detriment to performance versus a Kickstarter logo or a GameFound logo or a backer kit logo. 
which is really weird to me because right crowdfunding essentially is a pre-order mm-hmm. but people don't like the words pre-order now for whatever reason yep. <laughs> so i would say it's avoid cool. putting pre-order now but do put the crowdfunding platforms logo that you're using because people yeah, understand the urgency and fear of missing out is the single biggest driver people know that you're a crowdfunding campaign and then also fear of missing out. Once you're in your final hours and stuff, completely revamp your banners to make, hey, 72 hours left, 48 hours left, 24 hours left. Don't just keep the same banner design and change this tiny little message in the top right corner of your banner. I always say, like, have that take up 50% of the ad real estate. We're ending in two days. So you better click this <laughs> to get off the fence. And it's also good pairing that with your funding amount. And if, especially if you funded for a lot of money, um, both of those really drive that fear of missing out. Um, Cause you know what psychological impact that has as, as marketing people where people might be willing to back something that they otherwise wouldn't be really interested in. If they see there's a half million dollars in funding in place Suddenly that changes the soon. Well, what am I missing out on that everybody else is jumping out, <laughs> jumping on? Yeah. Um, so make sure to put that messaging um, in your banners. And that's the biggest mistake I see a lot of publishers make is they kind of set it and forget it. Like they give me all the banners up front and, mm-hmm. and they're not really being responsive to how their campaign is performing or taking the time to update banners along the way. I mean, right. A lot of it just boils down to, does this thing look cool? Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of a funny answer, but right. If, if you're not spending the money on high quality illustrations, appealing artwork, right. Appealing presentation. It's right. Ultimately the ad doesn't have to sell people the game. The ad just has to get people to click it where they go to your page, where you now sell people the game. Right. Mm-hmm. Your, your crowdfunding campaign is where you're going to sell them on the game. Um, I've had a few advertisers, they want to pack a whole bunch of text on the banner, trying to tell them what the game is and everything. That's not really the place for that. Like they're going to get mm-hmm. that on your landing page if you can get them to click. Mm-hmm. So right, we talked earlier, some of it's just the fear of missing out messaging. We're ending mm-hmm. soon. Um, but a lot of it is, is, is this a theme that's currently hot? Right, right now, if you're making a nature-themed game, good mm-hmm. news for you. People are into nature-themed games right now. And a lot of that really starts well before you get to marketing when you're making your initial decisions about your game. Like, what kind of art am I going to use for this game? Like, are you making a marketable product that visually catches people's attention that they're going to, right? How many games are getting released right now? Th- thousands mm-hmm. and thousands yeah. Like, what about what I'm making is going to get them to notice it over all this other stuff that's happening? Mm-hmm. And a lot of those decisions you're making well before <laughs> you get to the marketing phase. Um, and unfortunately, some publishers find out the hard way. Mm-hmm. That they made some wrong decisions about how they presented the game that it's it turns out to not be a marketable product. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it just boils down to the graphics, the illustrations, is is there a component in your game that's really unique to your game that maybe people haven't seen 
in other games. I can think of, is it Planet Unknown that did like the mm-hmm. Lazy Susan yep. turntable with the tile, like stuff like that. Like they put that in their ads and that's an attractive thing when people see, and they didn't, they didn't just do the basic thing. They didn't need to put a Lazy Susan in that game to make it a playable game. Yep. But like they thought about these things that are above and beyond what I normally see in a board game. And when people see stuff like that in a banner, they want to they want to see what that's about what is that thing yeah so the way that i kind of understand the way that i might interpret what it is that you're saying is the the hook um it's yeah. all about the hook of the game and this is something that i try to help our clients understand and you know and, and translate to us so that or we'll give to us so that we can put it in a landing page or or you know other places um and talk about it because the hook of a game oftentimes is uh, maybe related to the theme, how you uh, do what it is that you do, but or, or maybe a visual thing and mm-hmm. maybe a combination of all of them. But um, like for Deliverance, it's very much like, you know, you've got these really cool angel mini sculpts, which are very uncommon in, in games. And the, the general theme and the color scheme are things that are, it's very visually striking on the table. And so those are things that I would want to highlight for, for my game. Mm-hmm. Um, and Everdell, for example, would absolutely want to highlight that ever tree that stands tall, you know, or, or planet unknown. If, if it's a component, highlight the component. Um, what are other, other uh, like kind of bits of advice that you have? What about um, like the board game geek? So like deliverance right now oscillates between 8.7 and 8.8 on BGG. It's like mm-hmm. climbing, you know, a little bit by bit. And, uh, is that like, you know, it's like a hexagon with like a green hexagon with the, the BGG yeah. score in it. Is that impactful if you add yep. that to, yep. There's a few publishers that use that to really good effect. Obviously that's very situational, right? Like you can't, <laughs> you can't lie about what your board game geek rating is. Uh, but similarly, uh, right. We have influencers in our industry um, that are very recognizable, right? Tom Vassell, Rado, a lot of those people that that are just well known. I've also seen publishers use them to pretty good effect, and I don't know if they ask their permission. Can I use your face in an ad? Mm-hmm. I personally would if I was making that kind of ad. Um, I just think that's the that's the polite way to yeah. go about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. but they had Rado's face on the ad along with a quote that Rado made from his preview of the game, mm-hmm. th- those performed stellar because right. People trust mm-hmm. certain people in the industry and trust their opinion. Right. And as it goes with advertising, if everybody started doing that same thing, mm-hmm. I assume we'd see performance go back down again. <laughs> so it, it worked because that publisher did it. And I don't think anybody else is doing it and it'll probably work for you as well to a certain point until everybody starts doing it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I have a couple of ad styles that I use for Facebook and um, for board game geek. My, my first one that you just will kind of in, in random order is the reviewer face plus quote. So mm-hmm. that as, as a, an ad type, then you have the component feature, which would be a, a fe- featuring like in deliverance, the angel minis and, yeah. you know, saying like, look at this cool component or planet unknown that lazy Susan uh, which is a totally an excellent example. Then a third one would be the hook, um, maybe like a thematic 
you know, maybe a little bit of text to explain the theme. A fourth one is specific to crowdfunding, which is the amount raised, KS badge or or GameFound badge, um, plus uh, the fear of missing out kind of mm-hmm. to let people know 500,000 raised ending or ends in 72 hours. And then maybe the last one, as, as you said, that like just I'm pulling kind of from me- my short term memory and what you had said is the art. So if something mm-hmm. features art, without necessarily showing gameplay components that will work if the art is is highly uh, or is really beautiful one of one of the things one of the games that we um marketed was uh rurik stone and blade it was the Don- rurik donald kiev expansion and rurik has this really cool landscape oriented art piece on the on the box cover and i think that it um does very well you know for for um that type of uh, just kind of pulling people in with a really cool looking art piece. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there, those are my five, uh, you know, just based on our conversation. No, that's a great distillation of what I spent way longer talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, the way that board game geek kind of rotates ads, the display system will prioritize an even number of impressions between all the people using the system mm-hmm. right or or rather maybe somebody like uh myself that just jumps on with a small like a 800 campaign for ads i'm gonna get a certain amount of impressions and we can divide let's say fifty thousand impressions a day over the course of like two weeks or something so i uh it's not like uh you know board game week has like millions of people that use it Mm-hmm. And tons of impressions are going to come through, uh, but uh, mine are going to be spread evenly. So I'm actually able to adjust banners without having um, all my impressions get used up really quick. Right. Right. Yeah. So. And that's one, one thing a lot of people are confused about when they first come to us. They'll be like, well, how long does it take to display 1 million banner impressions? And I said, well, how long do you want it to take? We, <laughs> we can spread it over a week. We can spread it over two weeks. And that'd be another thing that I would suggest. A lot of publishers just don't ask me questions. Uh, like they just set up a campaign with fairly limited knowledge a lot of the times. And, and I'm pretty good about following up then and being like, well, I saw you did this. Here's probably what you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you said just now, a lot of people don't realize how big Board Game Geek is. So they schedule this ad by like a million impressions sounds like a lot of impressions to a lot of people. But if they spread it over a one month period, for example, on Board Game Geek, that represents a little under a 1% share of views just due yeah. to traffic volumes. Um, so then they come to me saying, well, how come I never see my ads? I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah, you you just didn't understand the scale of the thing you were buying into. But hey, good news. We can adjust it. <laughs> like if, if you want a higher share of views, yep. let's condense that down to a one week period or a few days period. So maybe on the, on the back of that, could you maybe enlighten our listeners on some of the, the numbers just so they have an, an understanding and they, they're trying to work out how much to, to spend with you guys? So in terms of your email list, would you mind sharing, um, if, if you can, the sizes those gen- genuinely are, and then also the the kind of general traffic uh, that you get on Board Game Geek. Sure, yeah. The emails um, crowdfunding weekly sees about thirty to thirty five thousand opens per week 
Um, it goes out to around 100,000, I believe, the last last time I looked closely at that number. Um, but really, you only care about the open rate. Now, not how many people it went out to because sure. it doesn't really help you if it went to someone and they didn't open it. So 30, 35,000 opens on that email. And then the last I checked, we're at about five and a half million unique users per month on the website. And cumulatively, that traffic generates around 120 million ad displays um, in a monthly period. So that's where I was saying, right? A, a million impressions over a monthly period out of 120 million ads that are being served. Yeah. Um, another, another misconception a lot of publishers have, they'll come to me saying, well, this I see this publisher's ads all the time. They're out competing me for ad space. I'm like, well, no, we we're displaying 120 million banners every month, regardless of what this guy is spending or what this guy is spending. The difference you're seeing is this guy is spending a lot more money than you are. Mm -hmm. They're not shoving you out of ad space. We don't oversell our inventory and have publishers out compete each other for the space. Might be just people are used to Facebook ads or whatever, where you're, you're bidding on the space. Mm -hmm. you're, you're just guaranteed what you paid for. Um, so I think that's a really important distinction that a lot of publishers, they kind of get upset that mm -hmm. they think they think we're selling them short when it's more, they just don't understand the numbers behind and then, it. Chad, are people able to schedule their ads time-wise where let's say they, they're only fulfilling to the US, so they only want their ads to display at the US at times where people are more likely to be in front of their computers, like not at midnight or something like that, or like three o'clock in the morning. Um, is that something that you can do? Um, you can, but we can also just target geographically. So I can say, we're only going to show this, these ads to people in the U S IP addresses originating in the U S. So I would recommend doing it that way rather than time. Cause there are people in the U S that are awake at really weird hours, <laughs> Sure, <I'm all> <laughs> you don't want to yeah. miss, but the, but the system's all also going to pace that accordingly, right? That it's going to show more, more of the banners during the daytime in the US if you're targeting a US audience than at nighttime just because there's more people from the US on the site during the day. So so in a way that kind of happens automatically if you set a geographic target. And then well, that's really awesome. I didn't I didn't realize that you could target geographically. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Kickstarter, that's incredibly valuable. If you look at the data, it's so heavily US, US based, yeah. based in terms of who's converting um, that a lot of times it just makes sense setting those mm -hmm. targets. So Chad, you mentioned that a lot of publishers don't ask you questions when they really should. Could you maybe outline some of those questions that people should be asking you that they that they don't? I know we've covered some of them, but maybe having a list that people can think about so that when they, they go to you for ad inventory, they already have an answer or they already have a, a knowledge of what should be done. Mm -hmm. A lot of it revolves around timing. Um, most publishers just come, they say, I want 2 million banner impressions and I start on October 17th and I end on November 7th. So they just blanket a flat delivery rate of, of 1.5 million impressions between those two dates, which right makes logical sense. That's, that's when I'm live. That's where I should spread my banners. I usually recommend getting a little more detailed than that. Um, so in our system, um, once you get into it, you can add all these advertising modules we've been talking about. You can add site-wide banner ads and homepage hero and a crowdfunding weekly feature. 
and all of these things. Um, what a lot of publishers, what a lot of publishers don't realize is that you can add more than one of each of those modules to the campaign. So you can get a little more granular saying, hey, for my first 48 hours, I want these banners running at this amount. And then for the midsection of my campaign, I want these banners running at this amount. Um, so I often will recommend to publishers, go heavy for those first 48 hours. A lot of those first 48 hours, if you're depending on advertising to make your first 40, 48 hours work, you're probably behind the game a little bit. Right? You need that you need that pre-built audience coming into those 48 hours. But it's also good to hit it heavier with ads too, as people see those numbers rising quickly in those early hours that they might be convinced to get on board. And then those last 48 hours, get it hard again with the timing because that's that the fear of missing out. You can use a lot of messaging yeah. in those last 48 hours that you can't use at other points of the campaign. And then the same goes for all the other options. Like what's the best timing to run an email hit? What's the best mm -hmm. timing for me to be in the crowdfunding countdown? Mm -hmm. And the answer is varied depending on what option you're looking at. Yeah. It's just, it's pretty simple, straightforward advice. A lot of the times that people go with their gut feeling on it. And a lot of times their gut feelings, right? Like we, we've all got a lot of information from a lot of different sources on advertising. So it's not that they're coming in completely uninformed. Um, just ask questions. I'm always willing to help. Yeah. So I have, I have a million questions. Um, I hope that our <laughs> users have some of these, but um I, uh, so I want to ask about, so we talked about crowdfunding, but let's say we have people that went through crowdfunding, maybe are in the pre-order with, uh, like a pledge manager phase, um, or like myself, which I, I just released to North America and Asia, Australia, and now we're, we're coming to Europe. I'm ready to sell like on an ongoing basis now. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, can people spend on an ongoing basis a certain amount of, of money every month? And is that going to be valuable to consider that as like a marketing tactic instead of just like a, we'll say a one and done, like a seasonal, like, Hey, my Kickstarter is going to go live or my Kickstarter is live. That's when I'm going to use board game geek. Is it, would you advise spending on an ongoing basis? Do you have clients that do that? Yeah. So this is one where my answer is going to be a little more of a gut feeling than <laughs> statistical data, just because it's been a trend in board game advertising that I've seen, I would say 85 to 90% of the ads that run on board game geek now are crowdfunding. Like I have a live crowdfunding campaign and most publishers. Now, I don't know if it's whether the perception of what's valuable or what's actually valuable. They're not really advertising at the point their game is actually available anymore. So it's more about hyping this thing that's coming and you can pre-order now. Um, it changes a little bit this time of year. We have some some publishers at Essenspiel, um, publishers like Asmodee, things like that. Their big releases are this time of year. Obviously, they don't even do crowdfunding, so they're, they're promoting games that are actually available. Um, but I have seen more about what you're asking about. Um, we have two publishers they continue, they continue advertising pretty regularly after their crowdfunding campaign wraps up. They point to the pledge manager to get those late pledges in. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have access to the data of how that's converting 
for them. But the fact that they keep re-upping four, five, six months in the row mm-hmm. suggests to me that it must be working or they wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> but yeah. a lot of people don't think to advertise that kind of pledge manager stage. Yep. Um, so yeah. Or even pre, pre-marketing with email capture. Mm-hmm. I, I actually tried that for uh, for deliverance. My, my, my thought was, so this is back in 2021, before we went live on Kickstarter, I, I never want to be the guy that's like, you know, we launch and now I'm going to run all my ads. We mm-hmm. built a hefty pre-marketing list of, uh, of people. And one of the areas I really wanted to target was BoardGameGeek. Uh, you know, like a small little note, but you mentioned earlier, the Kickstarter logo or the GameFound logo or the Backery Kit logo is a benefit on those display ads. That's actually the opposite in, on Facebook, where mm. people are like, oh, I'm being advertised to. I don't like that on Facebook. And mm. they're less likely to click. Whereas on BoardGameGeek, they're like, ah, yes, crowdfunding campaign. I am interested in these because I need to kind of keep tabs on whatever the industry is doing. So they're more likely to click, which is really kind of an interesting thing. But uh, what I did was I ran a pre-marketing campaign. I want to say we we did like 2 million impressions or something before the Kickstarter went live. And that was just running ads to my landing page, to the email list. And then... um, we ran ads when the uh, campaign went live. My thought was that if I have people that have already seen and are familiar with the the product, then when they see the ads and you know they're they're they'll be more likely to make a purchasing decision at that time, which mm-hmm. is a very important time as a crowdfunding in a crowdfunding campaign. That's when you've got to make the purchasing decision. Mm-hmm. You don't want people's first time they've ever heard about you to be after you've launched. Ideally, you want it to be before you've launched yeah. so that they have thought about you a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I'm, I'm really curious. I have a, a ton of questions and um, I'm going to just kind of fire them off and then you spend as long or as short as you like on them because mm-hmm. I have tons of them. First of all, can you use GIFs in your banner ads? We discontinued that option about two years ago. Two reasons, user feedback they just didn't like animated banners on the site. When you have a content-heavy site, that can just be distracting, which is good for for advertisers, right? <laughs> Distract whoever to your ad. But that was also backed up by just data we had in Google Ad Manager that showed animated GIFs were underperforming static banners almost every single time. So I said, well, why keep offering an option that's just performing strictly lower than the other option? Let's just cut it. Yeah. And how valuable, I mean, I guess this is a little bit of a loaded question because it should be very valuable, right? If it's your user base, but how valuable is user feedback? Because sometimes, you know, it's, as you mentioned to, you know, toward the beginning of this podcast, people don't really like to be sold to, but um, they do love to be informed and and all of that. Um, How, I guess, how is your ad manager system received by users? What is your general feedback on it? Do people like the ads? You know, was it always that way? And I know that there are some people that run ad blockers, which will prevent ads from displaying for them. Mm-hmm. But the general, like, how do you gauge user feedback? Yeah, like that example I just gave you, like we had feedback saying, we don't like animated stuff on the site. I'm trying to read an article that's annoying. And then right in that case, it was backed up by data that showed, oh yeah, people aren't clicking these anyways. But yeah, I think you'll notice as you browse Board Game Geek, we we don't make it an ad heavy 
website. We're not trying to cram advertising everywhere we can possibly cram an ad because right, the web, the website is the product, right? The, the content is the product. You want the users of the site to be happy. And we actually predate like Google ad block and stuff ever since I can remember We've had user settings for patrons where you can, it's pretty detailed. You can go into your user profile and say, I don't want to see those ads, but I do want to see those ads. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like seeing any advertising, you can do that on a user account without Google ad blocking or anything like that. We just have mm-hmm. that under your profile settings. Yeah, um, People that only want to see crowdfunding ads, they can activate the crowdfunding countdown module and get rid of everything else on the site. Uh, so yeah, we want to make sure that user experience is as good as possible while also allowing advertisers to get the word out yep. about stuff that's coming. Um, and I've also seen a lot of user feedback, people that use ad block of some sort, they'll say board game geeks, the only one I allow it for uh-huh. because it's actually alerting me stuff to things I'm interested in. Like, I want to know that this crowdfunding campaign launched. I want to know that this game's available. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll allow it from BoardGameGeek, whereas they don't allow it from other sites. I find as a user of BoardGameGeek myself, I have actually seen an ad that was interesting as I clicked something else. And I'm like, oh, no, I hit the back yeah. button. I want to see the ad. I refreshed the page a couple of times because I wanted to see that ad. It's funny, but you're, you're absolutely spot on. So now I'm, I'm really curious about the demographics of BoardGameGeek. And I remember seeing a breakdown of the board game geek demographics, um, please help me re- recall. But I remember a demographic survey that was conducted. Is that is that conducted on a yearly basis, or was that conducted just like once? But I, I I seem to remember it asked all sorts of things. It asked about people's backgrounds, about their you know religions, and 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 all sorts of you know deep things. Mm-hmm. And does that exist on board game geek? like data we can find oh i know i know we used to do them i'm i might be the wrong person to ask this question i i don't know how often we do that if we're still doing it i know you can if you google search for those threads you'll probably find them and right it's just a survey with our survey system so you can see all the results of it um if you find a thread but i i'm not talking with any kind of authority on this subject (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's really curious because I remember looking at, and this was something that I um, I looked at uh, back in 2019 or, or something like that. I, I just remember seeing, uh, because, you know, Deliverance is a Christian game. Right. And I decided I wanted to make it for, uh, the uh, you know, that, that group. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that Board Game Geek, it was like 50% of the user base label themselves Christian. It's mm-hmm. like, ah, this is a, you know, a great, a great idea for when I eventually have a product that I can market. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've got various micro badges where people can kind of wear on their sleeves, their favorite hobbies. And I think that that's a really cool thing, but a lot of them that I, I don't know, it's like, you know, you buy a red car, you notice all the other red yeah. cars on the road, you buy a Mustang, <laughs> you notice all the Mustangs on the road yeah. all of a sudden. And um, I noticed there are a lot of like, you know, the wooden cross micro badges, the little Aikthus fish micro badges, yep. stuff like that. I've um, got that on my profile. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, can 
I'm curious, can you target people based on micro badges? We don't have that ability, unfortunately. Um, is some that, of that's is that just, a choice? Well, we're just like limitation via tech. I don't know if this is still current, mm-hmm. but at, at one point, I'd have to look into this again. But at one point, Google Ad Manager considered it a rules violation if you were targeting based on user information that you've collected on your website, mm-hmm. which seems very hypocritical of Google because that's <laughs> yeah. like what they're doing. They sell that to but, the government. <laughs> but um, I know as of a few years ago, like we couldn't even do that without them deactivating mm-hmm our Google ad manager account. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm the wrong guy to ask about technical limitations. Yeah. I'm kind of like, I can get in my car and drive my car without knowing how it works. I use the software that we use, yep. <laughs> but there's guy, there's got other people on our team responsible for understanding the technical. Know-how. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's curious because I thought it would be so awesome for advertisers. If people, if you could advertise, for example, you know, Deliverance is very much, you know, uh, and I think a lot of games are, are like this with uh, where maybe they're inspired in some way by Final Fantasy Tactics or mm-hmm. they're inspired in some way by, you know, other games that exist out there. You know, Cthulhu as a theme is very big in the board game space. And mm-hmm. to be able to target that way, there's really, I mean, Facebook, you can do that. Um, they have a giant black box, right. which, you know, they'll tell you, um, that people exist that have that interest, but they won't let you see who they are or, or mm-hmm. communicate directly with them. Um, yeah, the, the closest we can get to that, we we can target based on some of our database metrics. So every game in the database is roughly sorted into, is it a strategy game? Is it a children's game? Is it a war mm-hmm. game? I can target based on that. So if you only want to hit strategy game pages of board game geek mm-hmm. which you're likely going to find people there that are interested in strategy games um we can do that sort of thing um so it's not at the user level but mm-hmm. you're still advertising in a place where that type of user mm-hmm. is more likely to be frequenting that's pretty interesting and that's that's new information to me so deliverance is listed as a thematic game it's listed as uh you know other various things but Thematic games are, you know, I, I, people who like thematic games really like Deliverance. And so I would definitely want to um, advertise, maybe cherry pick some of those and mm-hmm. say, okay, here are these five groups, uh, groupings of, um, you know, that I'd love to target. So that's actually very cool. So I could see, you know, theoretically, I can take my uh, $800 for a million impressions. Is that about what it is? I can't remember it's, now. It's a... It's a buck per thousand impressions. So a thousand dollars, million impressions. Okay. Okay, cool. So thousand dollars for a million impressions. And you're telling me that I can target geographically and mm-hmm. I can target based on the type of uh, interest. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, thematic games or um, like you said, strategy games, that kind of thing. And so if you're, if you're being really, um, really thoughtful and really clever, you can target people that are interested in, you know, um, religious games in the, in the United States, um, yep. as, as, as an example. Yeah. That we is, can get uh, there in a roundabout way. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is really curious. So, um, I'm glad that you, that you shared that, you know, it's fun to, to learn more about like what the actual capabilities are. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm curious now, uh, to, 
about the BGG TV content and also things like reviewers. I believe the Brothers Murph and, you know, there are, there's the Porky Geek podcast and that kind of thing. How is that? How does that factor in? Does that factor into the advertising uh, monetization of Porky Geek at all? Or is it just content that you're preparing for, for people? It really doesn't. Like, for example, a lot of publishers ask me, how can I get on game night? I want to be on game mm-hmm. night. Like the answer is that that's literally their game night and they're playing stuff they want to play. Yeah. Um, so publishers are free to send them games that they would like them to have. So long as they understand there is no guarantee that game is ever going to show up. <laughs> it's just, if they, if they're interested, they're going to play it. Um, but we do, the things we do have as paid content on board game geek TV are the, how to play videos. I'm blanking on that. I'm not heavily involved with Board Game Geek TV. Um, it's basically a very quick overview of the game. I'm blanking on the name of it um, at the moment, but mm-hmm. it's like a three-minute video on here's the basics of the game, here's what you're getting. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of publishers like doing that sort of stuff for their Kickstarter campaigns as content that they have ready. It's useful yeah. to have a video where people can see how to play it. It's useful. I mean, we all make right? The trailer videos for our Kickstarter header. Yep. Um, really that type of video we make is kind of that, except just not specifically geared to crowdfunding. So yeah. now I wanted, I wanted to mention and, and kind of just get a little bit into the email marketing because I think it'll be super valuable for everybody listening. Um, the crowdfunding weekly gone cardboard and gone uh, geek weekly, those three, mm-hmm. um, I believe. Uh, so crowdfunding weekly is exclusively for games that are going to Kickstarter that are in the middle of fulfillment and or 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 that are live something like that. Okay, yeah. live on Kickstarter GameFound mm-hmm. or Backerkit. Um, then the uh, that would come with like a square ad, uh, from what I remember, right? It's like kind of square. Yeah, the the very top of the emails is where the feature projects live, and yeah, mm-hmm. there's a three hundred by three hundred square ad with a short, whatever text you want to describe your game with. Again, explaining what your hook is. Yeah. And now this is something that is limited in quantity. So there are only three of them, right? Three per week. Yeah. You're not going to put four, right? So no, it's, it just reduces performance of everybody involved if we do too yeah. much. So the, um, so what I'm thinking is like when people need, when do people need to contact you? If they want something like, let's say I'm going to, um, I'm going to Kickstarter in March or let's, let's say, let's keep it safe and say, I'm going to Kickstarter next year at this time. Um, what time should I contact you to make sure that I have slots available and you know, all of that? I may not, do I need to pay up front in order to reserve them? So what time do I, what, what time should I contact you to make sure that I get the the spots that I need? I would say as, as soon as possible when you know what your launch date is going to be, or at least you're reasonably sure. Uh, we can always wiggle things around past that initial um, schedule. But yeah, I mean, currently, I believe my earliest crowdfunding weekly feature is in like mid-December mm-hmm. right now, if you were to try to book right now. Okay. Well, sometimes you might get lucky and something's available shorter term, mm-hmm. right? The longer you wait, the less likely you are to get what you wanted to get. Yep. Um, so I'd always just recommend as soon as possible. We do allow you to book with placeholder images. So if, if you don't quite have your banners made, anything like that, you can just plug 
banners from your last campaign in just for the purpose of getting dates reserved. Okay. Um, so long as you swap, get that stuff finalized at least 48 hours before launch, we're good to go. Um, and then there's no pre prepayment necessary. Uh, we invoice very shortly after the ads launch hmm. and we do 30, 30 day payment from there. Okay. And I'm, I'm pretty flexible on that too. If, if someone needs their Kickstarter funds to clear before making the payment, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm fine with it. I understand that position. We're not going to charge late fees or anything mm -hmm. like that on people. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's super helpful. Um, as far as people who have a product out and want to jump in the gone cardboard, um, is that uh, like, how far out is something like that booked? Gone cardboard is usually much shorter time window. And that's what we talked about earlier. Very few publishers are advertising their actual releases versus mm -hmm. crowdfunding. So it's just a less in demand mm -hmm. option. I don't know if it should be or not, but that's the that's yeah. the current state. Yeah, it's curious, mm -hmm. you know, I think I think that there are a lot of crowdfunders that print enough units to satisfy demand. Mm -hmm. And um the people that are thinking like I want to create a business here and sell it. You need to sell additional stock afterward. If you've sold all your stuff before it's even manufactured, then you, you had a pre-order and you're going to fulfill demand and all that. Yeah. But you know, I for, think some of it too is advertising a game that's actually available is a little more of a black box than advertising a crowdfunding, like crowdfunding. You can see, you can see, I spent this much and here's my return an available game, like I don't know who bought it at their brick and mortar retailer. I don't know who bought on Amazon. I don't right. I don't really know what happened yep. <laughs> with that money as much as crowdfunding. Yeah. So um well I, you know, I mean I'd love to know about how the black box works uh and and ranking and whatnot so I can gain the system. But you already <laughs> told me we're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> um so I won't even ask. <laughs> but what about some general advice? You know, what, what parting advice would you have for people that are considering, um, well, really anything just in your area of expertise, what would you find would be most helpful? Because our, our listeners are publisher hopefuls, you know, people that are looking to self-publish their first project, all the way to people that are, are experienced seasoned crowdfunders and, and board game, uh, you know, uh, developer, tabletop game developers. And you know, established companies. So, what what advice would you have for all the people listening? Sure, I I'll phrase it this way. I think the I think the biggest mistake I pe see people making, especially in the board game industry, is it seems like a lot of companies see marketing as an expense rather than an investment. Mm -hmm. um, so, what I see a lot of people do, they say, "I want to run a one thousand six hundred dollar campaign. That's my budget." And then they set it and just forget it. And they're not really analyzing their results. They're not. And I always say it's good. It's good having an initial plan. Like here's my initial budget. But man, if you're making a dollar for every 50 cents you're spending, don't quit. Like you're just leaving money on the table. And that's not me trying to sell ads. That's me saying you can make more money <laughs> than what yeah. you're making. If, if something's working, keep putting more money into it until it's not working anymore. Um, don't just kind of make your plan at the outset and stop there. Right. So that's the, and that might be more unique to the board game industry because we have a lot more mom and pop, like, mm -hmm. and that, that's me running my puzzle bomb company too. Like I'm, yeah. I'm doing it myself. Sometimes it might just be, I don't have time for that. 
So I'm going to, but yeah, that's the biggest mistake I see people making. And that's why I say I'm, I'm very generous in saying, if you need your crowdfunding funds to clear before making mm-hmm. your payment, by all means, I don't want to limit your success mm-hmm. yep. if, if what you're spending with us is successful. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I sometimes will have a client say, all right, look, I've got a marketing budget of, I don't know, let's say $5,000 total. Mm-hmm. And I could just spend $5,000 on Facebook ads or whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, manage it all myself. Why should I hire you and give you, you know, $2,000 of, mm-hmm. of that money? And it's always because I'm looking at it every day and I will make sure that money goes a lot further, that your 3000 with me goes a lot further than 5000 on your own. Because like you said, it's it's extremely hard to manage every aspect of your business, especially when you have crowdfunding going on. Mm-hmm. You have no time. You're going to already be a puddle of water on the floor by the end of your campaign. So it's just one less thing that you have to now think about and that you can rely on someone else to actively manage. And so I think that mm-hmm. the active management of BoardGameGeek ads is for me something, probably one of my personal biggest takeaways is that I should be actively managing. And last is just more of like a note, but uh, when I, how do I, how do I know when, what the BGG ads are working? I ask you for a report, right? And mm-hmm. you send it to me. Um, can I ask for like a regular report, like every day or every week or whatever? Is it automated for you? Or what yeah. would you prefer on that front? That's one limitation we currently have is it's a manual process for me to export a report of performance, which I'm happy to do it on a daily basis. If someone wants to do it daily, it's a lot of work on my end, but I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand like that data is really valuable, um, knowing what, what your click, especially the click through rates on your banners to see what's mm-hmm. working, what's not working. Um, and most publishers, they're solely relying on the Kickstarter dashboard. Um, I've learned that Kickstarter dashboard is only telling part of the story because they're yeah. not putting they're not putting cookies in the browser. They're not telling you what the true referrals are. Mm-hmm. They're just telling you where that came from on this particular visit. Um, we've had a few publishers that run more heavy Google analytics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've reported back to me that actual results from the Board Game Geek ads. On the low end, it was 2x what the mm-hmm. Kickstarter dashboard reported. On the high end, it was like 5x mm-hmm. what the Kickstarter dashboard reported. Um, so that Kickstarter dashboard can yeah. actually be kind of discouraging sometimes yeah. versus actual results. Yeah, we battle against that all the time, you know, where uh, all uh, the pre-marketing just seems like it's going so well. We're getting emails for like 65 cents an email. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we launch on Kickstarter and the funding keeps going up, but Kickstarter is like, not telling everybody where the, or not telling the creator exactly where it's coming from. And I, I've rather than invest all my effort to refine that and make sure that we're, you know, we just, we don't charge based on the commit a commission from what we earn the client or anything. And so, Mm -hmm. but it's always been a thorn in my side, you know? Yeah. It's tough. And I'm not here to throw Kickstarter under the bus or anything on that. It it is just a shortcoming of that system well uh well thanks so much chad it's been a pleasure um and you know we didn't really talk much about um your uh puzzle business you know puzzle bomb but i'd love people to know about it would you tell people just a little bit about it and and where they can find you 
Sure. Yeah, I design very unique wooden jigsaw puzzles. Um, check us out at puzzlebomb.com. Um, that's the easiest way. You can look look at them yourself rather than me describe them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're really cool. They're like three layers four layers thick and it's 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 pretty yep. cool yeah those particular puzzles are currently passing through the panama canal so we don't have them in stock yet but okay. soon. <laughs> that's awesome well uh thank you so much for uh you know for our part it's been awesome having you and thank you for your knowledge and i i guess we're gonna have uh even though rick's not on the podcast with us right now we're gonna have the robot version of him send us out <laughs> all right glad to be with you Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.